Amen. My friends, you know, grab your Bibles, open them up with me to the Gospel of John, and we're going to pick it up in chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the Gospel of John is the fourth of the four Gospel accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you're looking at the Bible, the larger numbers on those pages are the chapter divisions, the smaller numbers are the, the verse divisions. So we're going to looking at chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. And Lord willing, we're going to tackle the whole chapter this morning. So we'll get started. When you read John's gospel, one of the things that you want to keep in mind is the purpose for which he wrote this. Why did he write this gospel? And thankfully, John gives uh, the purpose for this gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. He says in 2031, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life. So wherever you're at in John's gospel, you should be asking yourself, okay, how does this help me to understand and to see and to believe that Jesus is the Christ? How does this help me to see and understand that he's the son of God? How does this help me to believe in him that I might have life? Every verse of John's gospel is aimed at that purpose. And so after the prologue, however, in chapters 1, chapter 1, 1 through 18, what we see unfolding in the first few chapters is kind of a, a negative response towards Jesus. After he cleanses the temple in chapter 2, the the, the leaders interrogate Jesus, and they demand a sign that he prove that he has the authority to do that. Of those who believe in chapter 2, Jesus, we're told, did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them, chapter 2, verse 24. In other words, they believed, but they didn't trust Jesus. Then in chapter 3, which we looked at a few weeks ago, Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus. That was encouraging. That was hopeful. But by the end of chapter 3, Nicodemus doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't receive him either. Friends, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. But by the time we get to chapter 4, we're asking the question, for whom? If he's the anointed king, if he's the Christ, who belongs to his kingdom? Who is Jesus the Christ for? That's what we want to consider this morning in chapter 4 of John's gospel. Again, it's a long chapter. We can break it up into two parts. Part 1 is this, a Samaritan town that's transformed. Part 1. A Samaritan town that's transformed. That's verses 1 through 42. Part 2, a Jewish town that's stagnant. A Jewish town that's stagnant. That's that's verses 43 through 54. Two points, 54 verses. You ready? Buckle up, let's go. Verse 1, God's word. Now. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. We'll pause there. Verses 1 through 6 really kind of set the scene for the whole chapter. Now, news gets out that Jesus is growing more popular than, than John the Baptist. But what's interesting is rather than basking in the spotlight, Jesus decides it's time for him and his disciples to move on. And part of that is because of the purpose why he came. He didn't come to win a popularity contest. He came to rescue sinners. And so the hour of his death and resurrection, that hour, which was, which, that timetable which was set by the Father, had not yet come. And so they leave Judea, which is in the south, and they begin to head north for the northern city of, or the northern area of Galilee. But on their journey, we're told, they pause in the middle between Uh, between Judea in the south and and, um, Galilee in the north, sandwiched in between is this area called Samaria, and that's where they pause. We're told in the text that it's the sixth hour, which is noon. So if you're in the middle of a desert in the arid area at noon, 
It's hot. It's dry. It's the hottest part of the day. And so it's worth noting in verse 6, just one little detail here, it's worth noting that Jesus, we're told, was wearied. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired from his journey. We need to keep that in mind because it's easy for us to picture Jesus in the Gospels, walking on water, multiplying bread, healing the sick, performing miracles, and then to lose sight of the fact that while, yes, he is fully God, he is simultaneously fully man. It's the mystery of Christ, that he's fully God. This is what we believe as Christians. He is fully God, and he is fully man. And as God, who is fully man in Christ, he knew hunger, he knew thirst, he knew what it was like to stub his toe, and he knew what it was like to grow weary. Friends, I just, one detail about that is I find that comforting, don't you? Are you weary? Praise God that Jesus knows what it's like to be weary. And in the fact that he knows what it's like, he's able to help us in our weariness. So Jesus, we find, is taking a break in his weariness, sitting on this well that was provided by Jacob, and the stage is set. The story continues in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank for it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So as Jesus' his disciples head into town to get lunch, Jesus sits at the, Jesus sits at the well to take a break. And so he, we find Jesus sitting alone at this well while the disciples go into town. It's then we're told in verse 7 that a Samaritan woman shows up at the well with her water jar to gather water for the day. There's no, there's no plumbing in, in that day. So she's there to get water for the day. Now we know from the Gospels that God can make water come from a rock. And we've seen Jesus already in chapter 2 turn water into wine. So all that Jesus needs to do to satisfy his thirst is do a miracle, but he doesn't. Instead, Jesus chooses to reveal his need and to ask this woman for help. I'm thirsty. Can you give me a drink? And in so doing, in, in showing his need to this Samaritan woman, Jesus is opening the door for a life-changing spiritual conversation. Now, it would be easy at this point to kind of skip over this conversation at the well as nothing more than a drinking fountain conversation at work. But the text won't let us do that. It's much, much more. In verse 9, the woman is shocked that he's talking to her. He, this Jewish man, is talking to her, a Samaritan woman, let alone asking her if he can drink from her jar? That's scandalous. Verse 9. How is it, she says, that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then to make sure that we don't miss the point here, John, the narrator, pauses the story and he adds an editorial comment. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In case you don't know that, you need to know that detail, he says. Why is that? Well, we, this, is history. this is their history, so maybe we're not, we're not used to this. So why is that? Well, 
years before, years before in the history of the people of God, the nation of Israel was actually split into two different kingdoms. When Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, became king. Israel was in the north. These ten tribes of Israel were in the north. And Judah was in the south. And what, what, what we see happening in the Old Testament is that the capital of Israel soon became named Samaria. While the southern, the southern tribe of Judah, their capital was remained Judah or Jerusalem, where the, the temple was. History goes on, and then in 722 BC, Israel was sacked and taken into exile. And as a result, the Assyrians who defeated them, they brought in foreigners from all over the world who worshipped other gods, and they made them to live in the land of Israel. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 17. Well, these foreigners who were living in uh, Israel, they brought in their idols and their false gods, and they worshipped their gods, and they began to mix their idolatry with Judaism. So you have Judaism, but you have it mixed, kind of, it's, it's syncretized with other religions. And some of these people, the foreigners that were brought in who worshipped other gods, they begin to marry, intermarry with some of the Jews that were left behind. So the Samaritans, well, they, they begin to look different. One other thing to note here is that, that, that they were looked upon by the Jews not only as an ethnic half-breed who had a compromised religion. One of the important facts about the Samaritans is that they didn't, they didn't accept the whole Old Testament as God's word. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, known as the Pentateuch. Everything else in the Old Testament, they just rejected. Right? And so because of that, they had some skewed views. And that's one of the reasons, because of their limited Old Testament, that's one of the reasons that they actually built their own temple in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. They built this temple in 400 B.C., we know from church history, or from history, Right? And then, and then the Jews were like, mm, no, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The, the, the temple is in Jerusalem. And so in 128 B.C., the Jews who despised the Samaritans came up north, and they actually demolished the Samaritan temple. Needless to say, the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't really get along. They, they hated each other. They despised each other. And so when Jesus, a Jewish man, talks to a Samaritan woman... There's a lot that's going on historically here. He is bridging a deep chasm. He's, he's bridging an ethnic, a religious, and a moral divide that has lasted and that is based upon centuries of hostility and suspicion between these two groups. And so she knows that. The Samaritan woman knows that Jews looked down on the Samaritans, that they kind of viewed them as scum. So when Jesus bridges the divide and begins to talk to her and even asks for a drink from her water jar that many Jews would have considered unclean, she's suspicious. Hey, hey, don't you know the rules, Jewish man? We're not supposed to be talking. What's going on here? So her guard's kind of up at first. But Jesus, being the greatest evangelist, doesn't let her snippy comment derail his loving concern for her. He knows that this woman has been thirsty all her life, that she's been looking for something to satisfy the deepest longing of her soul, only to come up every time, time and time and time again, only to come up empty-handed and more thirsty than when she had begun her search. She's frustrated. And so Jesus, the God-man, comes to her at this well, and he offers her living water. Verse 10, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, he's saying, listen, if you knew who I was, if you knew who's standing in front of you right now, you'd be asking me for a drink because I have what your soul is longing for. You've been looking everywhere and you can't find it, but I'm right here. At first, she thinks that Jesus is actually talking about physical water, H2O. 
And so she says, Jacob, you know, their, 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 their great ancestor had given them the well which they sat at. And so she asks him, are you greater than our father Jacob? And the Greek, the Greek syntax of that question assumes a negative answer. In other words, when she asked, are you greater than our father Jacob? She's thinking, of course you're not. You don't even have a jar for water. Who do you think you are offering me living water? And so Jesus clarifies for her that he's not talking about water from the well. Verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Sure, it'll it'll satisfy your thirst for a little bit, but you're coming back to this well. You're going to be thirsty again. But the living water that Jesus gives is different. Look at verse 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Notice that Jesus says that the water that he gives will become in him, in her, a spring of water. It's internal. There's no, Jesus' solution, Jesus' gift to her is no external patch on an unsatisfied life. Jesus is saying to her something far greater. He's saying, listen, the gift that I have to give to you, this living water is God making you a new creation. He, he, the gift that I have to give to you is the power of God changing you from the inside out. It's very similar to what he was saying to Nicodemus back in chapter 3 when he's talking about this new birth. And so in response, the woman says, well, that sounds pretty good. Give me this water, she says, so that I will not have to come here to draw water anymore. She still doesn't get it. Her perspective is limited her gaze is on this world she cannot with her five senses imagine that there's something more to this life than a nine-to-five job and then trying to distract ourselves and having the most fun we can on the weekend with entertainment to her that's all life is she can't see beyond what this life has this world has to offer and so she assumes that Jesus is talking about this living water, she assumes that the best thing that Jesus can offer her is nothing more than a little religion to make her life more convenient. In other words, give me what you have to offer so that I don't have to make this trip day after day to this stupid well. She's so, listen, she's so fixed on this world and what this world can offer to satisfy her that she's actually blind. She, She doesn't know to look up. She's blind to the fact that God is standing in front of her, looking on her with loving concern, with a desire to satisfy her deepest longing of her heart and her soul. She can't see it. She thinks he's still talking about H2O. And so to help her to see beyond the empty promises, the empty cisterns of this world, Jesus must reveal her greatest need. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I, I, uh, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Friends, I think we should hear, when when you hear Jesus saying this to her, I think the tone of his voice, if we could go back and hear him speaking to her, you would hear a tone of of gentleness. he's, He's putting the spotlight on her, but it's a tone of gentleness and a commitment to what is true. Scripture teaches that sex is God's wonderful gift, but it is reserved for one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Sexual expression outside of that marriage covenant between one man and one woman is, according to the Bible, sin. It's very clear. So not only is her current sexual partner not her husband, Jesus, being the God-man who knows all things, actually highlights that she's had five husbands. And that could either mean that she's been married and divorced five times or that she's committed adultery with five other men. 
Either way, Jesus, knowing all things, turns the lights on her sin to expose her greatest need. And I think what's interesting is that knowing this, it, it, it kind of it helps to explain other details in the text that we've seen so far, right? So, so for instance, why, why is this woman fetching water at noon during the hottest part of the day? In that culture, most people who would gather water from the well would do it in the evening during the cool part of the day. And actually what, what, what history shows us is that they would do that not only to get water in the cool of the day, but they would, that, was, that was the watering hole. That was a social event. Everyone would go to the well during the cool of the day, and it was their chance to kind of catch up, chat, fellowship, share the news, what's going on, and then go back into town. But this Samaritan woman was trying to avoid that. It's likely that she lived in guilt and incredible shame for years. She's likely tired of the looks of disgust from those in her town. Oh, here comes that woman. She's tired of being whispered about. Tired of being an outcast in Galilee. And so coming at the hottest part of the day would be her attempt to avoid the shame, to avoid the crowd, to be alone. So when Jesus comes, and she doesn't expect to meet him, but when she meets him there and, and he exposes her sin, we have to be careful. He's not doing that to be cruel. He's not like the town who is shaming her. He does this. He exposes her sin in order to reveal her ultimate need for him. She doesn't see it yet. He, he, he shows, he puts a spotlight on her sin to help her to turn away from the empty promises of sin and to actually awaken a desire in her heart, to awaken a thirst in her heart and her soul for him. The one who gives living water. The Lamb of God who can take away her sin, who can take away her shame and her guilt. He wants to awaken this thirst in her by exposing her sin so that she would come to the Christ who can make her a new creation from the inside out. Now, we know from John 3, verses 19 through 21, that when, you turn, when, when Jesus turns the lights on this world, the world flees from the light. The world runs to the shadows, runs to, it prefers the dark to avoid being exposed and, and when you look at Nicodemus in chapter 3, sadly, that's how he responds. He's standing in front of the Christ, the Son of God. And when, when Jesus says to him, you've got to be born again, he's like, no thanks. He goes back into the shadows. The spotlight, the spotlight is laser-focused on this woman and her sinful past. And the question we're left with is, how is she going to respond? Will she flee to the shadows? Will she run from the light? We have to keep reading to see how she's going to respond. The story picks up in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. No one told Jesus about her past. He just knew it because of who he is, right? Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And it's not, it's not immediately obvious in the English there, but when he says, I who speak to you am he, the he is added. The Greek actually reads, I who speak to you, I am. 
what God said of himself in Exodus 3.14. Friends, in verse 20, the woman, the woman is, she has a spotlight of, of God's light. She's speaking to the light of the world, right? The light is on her sin. She's exposed. And so in verse 20, the, the woman changes the topic <laughs> to a religious debate. You know, you Jews, you say that the temple's in Jerusalem. We Samaritans claim that it's in Samaria. We've been debating this for years. It seems that she changed the topic to avoid the uncomfortable topic of her sin. 2,000 years later, people still do this. When the spotlight's put on our sin, we bring up religious debates in order to avoid the spotlight. You know, sure, let's talk about Jesus, but isn't the church full of hypocrites? Yeah, I know you want to talk to me about Jesus, but aren't there errors in the Bible? And on and on and on go these questions. And a lot of these are really good questions, good questions to ask. There's good answers to those questions. But oftentimes when those questions are brought up, it's because it's a deflection. It's a smokescreen to avoid the light exposing the sin. And what's amazing, we watch Jesus, the master evangelist. She tries to kind of steer the conversation that way. But Jesus refuses to let her question derail the conversation. And so instead, Jesus, the master evangelist, just picks up her objection and uses it. Jesus' answer in verse 21 is that the temple's location, yeah, I know it's been debated for years, but the temple's location is irrelevant now that I've come. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So the you is talking about the Samaritans. The we is talking about the Jews. Since Samaritans limited God's revelation to the first five books of the Old Testament, their knowledge of God was limited. They worshipped what they did not know because they lopped off 34 books of the Old Testament. Jews, in contrast, had all 39 books of the Old Testament, God's inspired revelation to his people. So in saying that salvation is from the Jews, Jesus' point in part is that the Old Testament, in all its inspired revelation, is God revealing himself and his plan of redemption to us. It's God revealing himself, it's God revealing his plan of redemption, a plan that culminates in Jesus, not in the temple. You see, Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was pointing towards. Jesus, therefore, replaces the shadows of the Old Testament. The shadows of the Old Testament are signposts saying, Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Christ is coming, and then Jesus arrives and says, I'm here. And so he's replacing the shadows of the law with the substance of what they pointed towards. In, in other words, they pointed to Jesus. This is the point that Jesus is going to make in the next chapter, in chapter in John 5, 39. Jesus is going to say, hey, the Old Testament scriptures, they bear witness about me. His arrival ended the sacrificial system of the Old Testament of the old covenant. Why? Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus turning water into wine in chapter 2 was not just a party trick. He's saying, I have come to replace the empty ritual cleansing of the old covenant and I'm going to replace it with wine, the wine of a new covenant feast that's yet to come. And when he cleansed the temple in chapter 2 and turned the tables over, he was making the point that his body is now the temple. He is the place where a sinful, ma a sinful man can dwell with a holy God. In other words, church, all roads don't lead to God. Jesus is the way that sinful men and women are reconciled with God. That's his point in verse 24 when he says that those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit means that worship is no longer about a location of a temple in Jerusalem. We worship God through Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. We worship him right now in Upper Marlboro, Maryland through Jesus because he's our temple. In 
and we worship him in spirit, we also worship him in truth. In other words, we worship God as he reveals himself in the pages of scripture. We don't just sit around in a circle and say, who is God to you? No, 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 no. We open up our Bibles and say, who does God reveal himself to be? That's the truth about God, and that's the God that we seek to worship. Friends, worship involves adoration and action. Worship begins with adoration, seeing the truth about God in the pages of Scripture and treasuring him. But adoration always results in action when it comes to worship. Trusting God, obeying his commands, putting our sin to death by the Spirit. Adoration leads to action. That's true worship. So in that sense, singing, which we just did, is wonderful. It's one expression of worship. But don't make the mistake of thinking that we we started worship when we were singing. (laughs) Worship is more than singing. You didn't start worship when you started singing this morning. From the moment you woke up this morning, you've been worshiping. And on Saturday when you woke up, you started worshiping. And on Tuesday when you woke up, you started worshiping. All week long, at work, at school, when you're driving your car, when you're eating lunch, you're trusting something, you're treasuring something, you're pursuing something, you're obeying something. The question is not, will you worship? We always, always worship. The question is, what or who do you worship? And that's the very issue that's confronting the Samaritan woman. She knew the Christ would come one day. (laughs) But Jesus gets pretty clear in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. That's pretty clear, right? Who's the Christ? I who speak to you, I'm it. I'm the Christ. So the question now at the end of verse 26, is will she turn from her idolatry? Will she turn from the false gods that she's, she's sought satisfaction from, the, the gods of sex or intimacy or whatever else she was looking to, the empty cisterns of this world to satisfy her? Will she turn? And will she turn to worship God in spirit and in truth? Let's find out. Verse 27. Just then... His disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why, do you, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Listen. This is amazing. The people that she once avoided by going to the well in the middle of the day, now she's running into town to tell them about Jesus. She avoided them, now she's seeking to tell them something. What made the difference? She's coming to know Jesus. She's coming to know Jesus as the Christ, the King. She's coming to know Jesus as the Lamb of God who can take away her sin and shame and guilt. And so she comes into town and she says, come on, see a man who told me all, all, all that I ever did. All that I ever did. That's a lot, right? Jesus, I don't think Jesus went back and actually cataloged every detail of her life, all that she did. It's kind of hyperbole. But I think her overstatement shows how central her sinful past was to her thinking. That's why she says, all that I ever did. But things were changing for her. Jesus was changing her. If Jesus can take away her sin and her shame, she doesn't have to hide anymore. She doesn't have to pretend anymore. She can come into the light. She can come to the people. She can come to God through Christ. Because people who have been forgiven much, they love much. People who have been forgiven much are eager, like this woman, to tell the world, I've got good news. If you've been forgiven little, if you think you've been forgiven little, you won't tell anybody. But if it's, if you know what you've been forgiven, ho, ho, watch out. i got some good news to tell you. Friends, if you're not, if you're, if you're not yet a Christian, you're sitting here this morning, you're listening online, and you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad that you're here listening in. 
And I pray that you see in John 4 what this woman sees in Jesus. Life is so much more than finishing college, getting a job, having 2.5 kids, a white picket fence, and then entertaining yourselves to distract yourself. Life is so much more than that. Life is about knowing God, loving God, being satisfied in God, trusting God. He created us and he satisfies us. And so as Jesus came to the woman at the well, he comes to you today in the gospel of John. In love, Jesus came from heaven to earth to sit down at the well with you and to offer you the gift of living water. Jesus is God's greatest gift. He lived the perfect life we failed to live, so on the cross he could die in our place the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. And on the third day he rose from the dead and he lives and reigns today to offer life, to offer living water, to offer eternal life to all who would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. So friends, if that's you today, I pray that you hear my words. I pray that you hear God speak to you in the pages of scripture. And I pray that you turn from your sin, that you turn from your self-reliance and that today is the day that you trust in Christ. Friends, if you have any questions about what that means, come talk to me afterwards. You can talk to any of our pastors. We're gonna have pastors at the doors at the exit afterwards. Talk with any of us. We'd love to try to answer any of the questions that you have about what it means to trust in Christ. Do that today. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. <laughs> but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that there, this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. When the disciples get back, he, you know, remember, he sent them to McDonald's to get some lunch for them, and they come back with the lunch, and they, they're urging Jesus to eat, but he's not interested in food. And so they're, they're scratching their heads. Why, you know, did somebody sneak him a, a granola bar? Why, why is he not eating? And Jesus explains, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. You hear the echo of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but we shall live by the word of God. Jesus is modeling the satisfaction that this woman was looking for. He had what she's looking for. The answer to our discontentment is worship. The answer to our discontentment is to worship the true God in spirit and in truth. And worship is not just singing songs. It involves adoration and action. It involves obedience. And so for Jesus, doing God's will, obeying what the Father has sent him to do, is so, it's literally so satisfying to him, he doesn't, he, he, he can't, he don't, he doesn't care about lunch anymore. It's so satisfying for him, he's like, I got, we got other things to do here. Instead, he tells the disciples that there's work to be done. Verse 35, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So 
The gospel seeds have been planted. You know, it could have been John the Baptist. It could have been the prophets that came before. It could have been Jesus. But when he says, look up and, and, and see that the fields are white for harvest, he's saying the Samaritans coming to them, likely dressed in white clothing, the Samaritans coming to them are the spiritual harvest that they're about to reap. We've got work to do, he says. And sure enough, many in that town trusted in Christ. Verse 42, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. So let's come back to the question that we asked at the very beginning. Lots of people rejecting Jesus. Samaria offers a different picture. Who is Jesus the Christ for? And here we see the answer. He is the Christ for anyone who believes. He is the Savior of the world, not just one little tribe over here. He is the Christ. He is the King. He is the Savior for anyone who would come to God through Christ. In verse 23, Jesus said, interestingly, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God doesn't just sit back and, 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 and is not, he's not just passive here hoping that somebody will believe in him. He's seeking such people to worship him. And here, what's interesting, in Samaria, the Father takes the initiative and seeks for people to worship him through, through Jesus. Jesus is doing the Father's will. Jesus is the expression of God seeking worshipers, and he finds them in Samaria. Jesus then turns around and he commissions his disciples. We've got work to do. Look up. Then later in John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 21, he speaks to the church. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. So God the Father sends his Son, the Son sends his disciples, and part of those disciples is us, the church. Church, many people today look at God with nothing but kind of a vague resentment or see him as a judge to be avoided. And many people in the world don't realize, our neighbors, many of our family members, many of our friends, our co-workers, they don't realize that God has a gift that he wants to give. They're oblivious to that, just like this woman is at the well at the very beginning. And we need to understand that church Evangelism is both our responsibility and it is our privilege to tell those people who don't realize that God has a gift for them, God has a gift for you. A gift of living water that leads to eternal life through Christ his son. The father is seeking. The father is seeking a people for himself. And he has called the church. He has called First Baptist Church of Marlboro to share the good news. That's our, that's our task. That is our mission, to make disciples. Friends, when, think about that. When is the last time, church, when is the last time that you have shared the gospel with someone? That's what God calls us to do. Who are the people that you need to share the good news with? That's why we have these resources, the gospel of John. This little booklet on the resurrection and you, these little tracts. Um, just as resources to kind of give you a, a tool to use. You don't have to have these tools. All you need to know is who Jesus is, the gift that he has to offer. You need his word. But, but if you want to use those tools, they're on that welcome desk. After the service, just go grab, grab a couple of them and use them in order to start that conversation with your family member, friends, neighbors that don't yet know Jesus. One sows, Jesus said, another reaps. In other words, evangelism is not just something that you hire a group of professionals to do. As the Father sent me, Jesus says, I send you. Evangelism is an all-hands-on-deck task. Every one of us. And this idea of sowing gospel seeds and reaping a harvest that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit requires, it requires prayer, and it requires patience. Patience is hard. There's a story of a young man named Luke Short who once heard John Flavel preach in Portsmouth, England. And um, after he heard the sermon, uh, he wasn't a Christian. He heard it, and he left England. He traveled to America for work. Years and years, decades passed. 
until he was a 100-year-old man. He's out in the field plowing his field, and he's tired, so he sits down to take a break. And as he's sitting there, he remembers a sermon that he heard John Flavel preach 85 years ago. And in that field, the Holy Spirit convicted him. And he was converted right then and there as a 100-year-old man. Even when we don't see the harvest, we should be encouraged to keep planting seeds, keep sharing the gospel. We might not always see the fruit of it, but one sows and the reaps, and we should be encouraged that God will cause the growth. Jesus' example, the the main point of this text is that Jesus is the Christ. I'm going to be a broken record all through John's gospel. That's the point of every text. Jesus is the Christ, Son of God. You've got to believe in him, and by believing in him, you have eternal life. That's the point of this text, too. Jesus is the Christ. And he's the Christ for anyone who will believe in him. But one of the things that we take away in terms of application, I think, is watching Jesus, the master evangelist, show how to do it. So I want to just give four applications for our evangelism, four brief applications that will help us in our evangelism. Number one, prioritize the kingdom of God over the petty differences between us and other people. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first, above all else, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, the world we live in right now wants to divide the church. Satan wants to divide the church. Your sinful flesh, my sinful flesh, wants to divide the church over things like politics or ethnicity or gender. The world says, pick a group, pick a tribe. Make that the most important thing about you. And then demonize everybody who disagrees with you outside that group. Just like the Jews and Samaritans. Just like the Hatfields and McCoys. Just like the Democrats and Republicans. Jesus ignores the rules of social customs. And he bridges the divides. He talks to the woman. Because he's going after what's most important. Souls that are eternal and the glory of God. Application number two, be willing to share your needs with your non-Christian friends. Jesus says to the woman, I'm thirsty, I need a drink, can you help me? So it may, some of those, when we express our needs, sometimes that's what actually starts the spiritual conversation. So it might be as simple as you going over and asking for a cup of sugar from your non-Christian friend. Or it might be something bigger, like you actually being honest about your pain that you're going through. My wife's testimony, she came to Christ through the witness of a Christian friend in college who let her in on her own struggle with multiple sclerosis. So she, as a non-Christian, watched her Christian friend struggle with multiple sclerosis, and God used that to lead my wife to Christ. Be willing to share your needs with your non-Christian friends. Number three, don't let others' opinions of you keep you from sharing the gospel. What will they think of me? What will so-and-so think of me if I share with them? Jesus shocked people by talking to the Samaritan woman. But he did so without ever compromising the truth and without ever compromising by giving into sin. Application number four, don't believe the lie that your sinful past somehow disqualifies you from your evangelism. God used a woman with a scandalous past to bring a lot of people in Galilee to himself. If he can use her, he can use you and me. And friends, oftentimes the opposite is true of that, of that lie. It's God's power to change our lives that often serves as a platform to display the power of the gospel and to show its potency to those who are around us. All right. So, we're, in, we're leaving Samaria. After we see the Samaritan town that's transformed, we come to a Jewish town that's stagnant. That's the last point here. You with me? You with me? All right. This last point shorter. Hang with me. Verse 43. After the two days he departed for, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has, has no honor in his own hometown. So he came to Galilee. The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. 
When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that, God, that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour that when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So I think part of, what, part of what, with these two different scenes, one in Samaria, one in Galilee, what we're meant to see is a contrast of response. You see this two-day spiritual revival in Samaria. And then when he comes to Galilee, uh, we see kind of a, a stagnancy, a spiritual stagnancy, an unresponsiveness. In verse 45, we're told that the Galileans welcomed him. So it might, we might read that and think, well, what's wrong with that? They're welcoming Jesus. But from the context, it's very clear that their welcome was actually a shallow one. They welcomed him the way that you might welcome the UPS delivery guy. You know, we like the packages that he delivers, but we're not about to invite him to live in our home. The Galilean welcomes, the Galileans, they welcome Jesus not to honor him as the Christ to be trusted. That's his point in verse 44. There's not, the, the prophet is not, he's without honor in his hometown. But they welcome him as a magician who does fancy tricks to wow them. That's why Jesus issues the rebuke that he does in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, the thing to keep in mind here is that, that the, the, the you, uh, the pronoun you in verse 48 is in the plural. In other words, he's not just, he's not just aiming this rebuke at the, the official. He's aiming it at, the, uh, at Galilee. He's saying, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you won't believe. This whole town, this whole area is filled with hard-hearted sign seekers. They were the evil and adulterous generation that Jesus rebukes in Matthew 12. One reason that sign seeking in this way is evil is because it expresses the pride that's in our heart. When we come to Jesus and demand that he perform miracles to get us to believe, it's like we're saying to Jesus, all right, we're, I'm in charge here. I'm going to set the terms of, uh, uh, I'm going to set the terms here. So get busy and do some miracles for me if you want me to follow you. That's just arrogant. That's, that's pride. You don't, you don't respond to God that way. 2,000 years later, though, some people today are still looking for miracles to be the foundation of their belief. They kind of make deals with God. I'll believe if God does a miracle to prove himself. Friends, God, John, John's gospel is going to show us that we need far more than miracles to believe in the biblical sense. You can see that in John 12, 37. He does lots of miracles they don't believe. We need more than miracles. We need the spirit of God. We need the new birth that the spirit brings about to change us from the inside out to believe the way the Bible talks about. And church, I think we also, we also need to guard ourselves against this same pride. It expresses itself in many ways. We may not say it out loud, but we oftentimes are tempted to come to God and kind of set the terms of our belief. We not, again, we might not say it out loud, but we think things like, God, I'll trust you if. Anytime you put the if in there, you're setting the terms. God, I'll, I'll trust you if you let me keep my loved ones. You let me keep my health. You let me keep my bank account. God, I'll go wherever you say. But in the small print of our hearts, it reads, unless it means giving up the habit I really love, unless it means being humiliated in public, unless it means forgiving the person who really hurt me in the past. Friends, Christianity is not about self-improvement that leaves us in charge. It's about trusting Christ as Lord over everything. Christianity is about losing everything to gain Christ because he's far better. Galilee, the Galileans, like Nicodemus, 
they still don't see their need for Jesus. And they had too much to lose in following Jesus the way that he demanded. The exception that we see in this last paragraph is the official in Capernaum. His son was deathly ill. He was out of options. And his desperation caused him to run to Jesus. Sometimes we hate our desperation. I hate feeling desperate. But sometimes it's our desperation that leads us to Jesus. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Just pause for a second there. Put yourselves in the shoes of this man, the official. Jesus did not go with him. That would have been comforting, right? Jesus did not sign a contract. He did not do a miracle. The man's son was at the point of death. And all that Jesus gave him to hold on to was a promise. His word. How do we know that the man, how do we know the man believed Jesus? Verse 50 says, he went on his way. He didn't just say, yeah, I agree, yeah, I believe. He acted on God's promise. He took Jesus at his word and he obeyed. Jesus said, go, and he went. This official provides a practical example of what it looks like for us to obey God. Not in our strength, but in the strength the Holy Spirit provides. As one writer points out, we can trace the progression of this man's obedience uh, using the acronym APTAT. So if you remember acronyms, remember APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. So what does relying upon God look like as modeled by this this Capernaum official? A-P-A-T, A, admit that apart from God you can't do this. (laughs) The official knew that. He comes to Jesus crying for help. Two, or P, so A is admit, P is pray. Ask God for the help that you need. The official cried out, Jesus, help me. My son's going to die. Heal him. A-P-T, trust. Trust a specific promise from God's word. In the official's official's example, Jesus promised the man, go, your son will live. He doesn't always promise that, but here he does. In our situation of trying to follow God and trust him, our situations are going to be different. So we're going to need to open our Bibles and find what is the, the promise that God gives to me in my situation. So for example, are you lacking wisdom? Go to James 1.5. Are you wrestling with guilt and shame? 1 John 1 verse 9. Are you tired and weary? Psalm 55 verse 22. Are you anxious? Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7. James 1 5, 1 John 1 9, Psalm 55 22, Philippians 4 6 and 7. The Bible is jam-packed with promises for God's people. And so we need, we need to trust and hold on to a specific promise for God from God in that situation. A-P-T-A, act. In obedience to God's word, live as if what God promised is true, because it is. For the, for the, for the official, it meant to stop asking Jesus to do it and then just go home. <laughs> that took faith. And he did it. So what does obedience look like for you? What, what would life look like if you believed God's promise to you in that situation to be true? Do you need to pray, repent, rest, fight, flee? What does obedience look like? A-P-T-A, finally T, thank. Thank God for the good that he's going to give. What God gives may not be the good that you expected or even asked for, but we can be confident that God always gives good gifts when we ask. Aptat. Ask, pray, trust, act, and thank. That's what it looks like for us to walk by faith. Friends, in contrast to the rest of the town's shallow welcome to Jesus and their demand for miracles, this official takes Jesus at his word and he trusts Jesus with what's most valuable to him, his own son. We honor Christ, we honor Jesus as the Christ, not in having feel-good moments once a week, We honor Jesus as the Christ by obeying him as our king, taking him at his word, and banking our lives on his trustworthiness. 
The contrast between the official's faith and the rest of the town's stagnancy, the difference between the Samaritan's response to Jesus and the Jewish response, whether in chapter 4 or in Nicodemus, raises the question for the reader, you and me. How will you respond to Jesus? Let's pray.